0: Well, it's good to be with you again. It was uh, um, bittersweet last week. Uh, it was great to be up at North Creek and have the opportunity of being in, uh, introduced to the church family there in Walnut Creek. And um, they have been just great support and partners with us. And it was just a joy also to, to be able to have uh, Jim Daggs here last week. So I rejoice over the fact that he was here and was able to, to give the goods. And he's a good man and learned to love and appreciate him. And um, as you uh, heard during our announcement time, um, you know, we have set a date for our launch, which is September 18th, and um, in light of that, um, I really wanted to, to jump in and actually just start packing our way through a book of God's Word. And uh, uh, the the marks of a healthy church was think helpful for us, laying some foundational things, just as a pastor, I just, just wanted to, to say, let's, let's go to the Word. and Let's just let it teach us. And so this morning, we're finding ourselves in the book of Jonah. And for the next number of weeks, we're going to walk through this, this great book. Now, one of the things that is always um, exciting for me in this book and uh, has a personal connection is that uh, many of you know I was born in Israel. Well, I was born in Tel Aviv, and our house Um, actually backed up to the whole region of Jaffa, which is now what Jaffa was. So I would look out my backyard, and there were orange groves there. And if you've ever been in in Europe, you probably know that in Europe, the oranges are all from Jaffa. When you get an orange, it has Jaffa stamped on the side of it, just like if you're on the East Coast, it's usually sunkist from Florida, right? And here in California, we grow our own stuff, so we don't benefit from anyone else. But... In Europe, it's Jaffa, and Jaffa, of course, is uh, the Joppa that we find here. So there's a little personal connection that that, uh, I enjoy about this story. I want to begin this morning, though, um, as we look at the story of Jonah. Uh, It's not just a story. It is God's word, and God has it in his word for a reason. But I'd like for us to consider, first of all, a great caution. And this great caution is for us, because I think if there is one Old Testament story that you learned if you grew up in Sunday school, it was the story of Jonah, right? And you probably have in your mind some concept of what the story of Jonah is all about. But friends, historically, Jonah is a book that has been ridiculed, it's been brushed aside, um, it's been made a mockery of, in particular as uh, to justify mocking the Bible. It's been denied. And uh, uh, it's not a fable though it's not an allegory it's not a parable or some kind of mythological legend although much ink has been spilled by believers and unbelievers alike through history to attempt to relegate this book to some kind of degraded status hear this, it must be emphatically stated that Jonah is a book that recounts the literal and historical events of a real prophet of God who has given a serious message by God to a wicked city, the city of Nineveh. It's not just some story that's floating out there that has some insignificance. This is real events with a real prophet, with a real city, and a real city that was large and wicked. But even among believers, because we have grown up in the church, many of us, because we've been in Sunday school, or we've taught Sunday school, and I'm not saying Sunday school is the place where things always get watered down, but sometimes we, we have this kind of uh, uh, cute approach to the story of Jonah. You know, it's about Jonah the prophet and this, this great whale. Well, let's get our facts correct. It's not a whale. What does the passage tell us? It's a fish, okay? You say, well, what's the difference? Well, Big difference. It just doesn't say whale, well, all right? Some might even kind of consider this, you know, it's a good story, but it's, it's hyperbole. It's, it's, it's not supposed to be taken literally. It's kind of an example, and it's, it certainly is an incredibly poetic book. But it is a literal, historical, factual story that God has included in his canon, in his word, for the benefit of his people Israel, but also for our benefit. And so this morning we want to make sure that we do our part to allow this this story to affect us and to teach us and to mold us and to shape us in the way that God wants us to uh, to be shaped. And it's not just about a fish, it's also about a worm. I mean, why don't you think about a worm when you think about Jonah, huh? I mean, you know, you think about the irony of that, fish. Little worm. And yet God is using all of that to teach us and to shape us. Now, although some would question the validity and credibility of Jonah, our Lord and Savior Christ did not. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 12, Matthew 12, it's important to see this. Because if if someone's going to discredit the Word of God, and in particular they're going to discredit Jonah, they ultimately have to discredit Jesus Christ himself. Because in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39 and following, Jesus is answering the Pharisees who are asking Jesus for a sign, a sign to give credibility to his seemingly outlandish claims. And here's what Jesus Says, Here's how it responds, verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Was Jesus speaking figuratively? No, he was speaking Literally. He was referencing Jonah as a literal, historical example that represented what he was going to be doing in dying and being buried and rising again. So Jesus then gives us the truthfulness and the facts that this story is true. It is factual. It is literal history. Now, Jonah is a historical story that reveals a number of important biblical truths. And just a few that we're going to highlight right now, um, just to, uh, to prepare us for our study through this book. Right? First of all, um, the majestic character of God. Throughout this book, you are going to see God on display. You're coming up against a book, not just a little book about, this, about Jonah the prophet. It's really ultimately about God. Now imagine going to Niagara Falls. anyone been to Niagara Falls? You see it on pictures. You might even go down the Niagara River there. And, and you think, okay, this is going to be impressive. But you stand there next to Niagara Falls, and it is thundering. It is huge. And you're just amazed at how much water is just constantly going over and constantly going over. And I want us to approach the book of Jonah in that sense, that when we, when we stand by it, We are amazed and overwhelmed with how much God is on display in this book. We're rubbing shoulders with an incredible, majestic God. In this book, we'll see that he is a sovereign God. He controls everything. He's a stubborn God. What he desires to take place will take place. He's a holy God. He will not tolerate sin. He will not tolerate wickedness or evil. He's a merciful God, even though man does not deserve it. And there's so much more that we could say about his character that will be fleshed out in this book. We also see in this book the sinful character of man. Man is evil. Man's anger, in particular Jonah's. The bitterness uh, of Jonah disobedience, defiance, the desperate nature of man, man's pride, and on and on. It's just, it comes right out in the story as the story is unfolded. But one of the great themes in this book is what we sang about earlier, and that is the extent of God's mercy. And we know the story. Jonah didn't do what God wanted him to do, and you know, he, he ran off, and he went the other direction. We know that, and we're going to get into that a little bit today. But God was even merciful to Jonah. He was merciful to the sailors, chapter 1. He's merciful to Nineveh. And ultimately, he has been merciful to Israel, who needs to recognize that they need to be merciful even to the Gentiles. God's mercy is extended to people who do not deserve it. Right? And it's a great theme. And it's something that we need to be reminded of, because hear, hear this, we still sin. We still get angry. We still struggle with what God requires of us. And sometimes, in our stubbornness and disobedience, we act according to the flesh, and we do our own thing. And yet God is merciful. We don't deceive. Sorry, we don't, we don't deserve his... his uh, restoration through forgiveness. So this is truly what I'm calling a great story. I came up with the the, the theme, great expectations, because in this book, there's a number of times the word great is used to describe the great fish, to describe a great city, and so on. And in this this story, we have a number of things that I think are great. A great commission, we're going to study that today. A great disappointment. um, That would be... God's disappointment of of, uh, Jonah, a great storm, a great fish, a great prayer, a great change through repentance and restoration, a great plant, a great bitterness, there's just a lot of great things that are happening in this passage, so it's a great story with great expectations. So I want to caution us a little bit here to say this, this is a familiar story, is it not? And sometimes when stories like this are so familiar, we tend to read over things that may be significant that the narrator in giving us this story, and it could be Jonah who's writing it, is giving us details that help us understand some of the events that are going on. But when we're so familiar with the story, we just want to get to the, you know, to the next part, to the next part, to the next part. But God has given us his truth, and we want to pause, we want to look at that, we want to allow that to to saturate us this morning. So come with me now once again to uh, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to talk here about a great commission. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So this great commission, I'm dividing it really into two different parts, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 3. And the first part is this commission that has been, been given by a sovereign God. Now I want you to notice, first of all, it says, Now the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. Now again, we could just breeze by that. But what we have here is language that is unique to a prophet of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, just like the word of the Lord came to Micah and Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah. You can check it out. Jonah was a prophet of God. He had a responsibility before God to hear the word of the Lord, and then to proclaim the word of the Lord, and to follow the instructions of his God. And so this is no small message, but a message from Almighty God to a prophet, one set apart by God, to be his mouthpiece, to be his messenger. But notice also it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Anyone know what the name Jonah means? Dove. It means dove. There's some interesting plays on that. But this is not the first time that we have a recorded activity of Jonah. In fact, he prophesied uh, before this. And if you want to turn your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. We'll see how Jonah functioned as a prophet before or up to this point in time. 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 23 I'm just going to read this passage through verse 27 In the 15th year of Amaziah the son of Joash king of Judah Jeroboam and that would be Jeroboam the 2nd the son of Joash king of Israel began to reign in Samaria and he reigned 41 years and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord which puts him on what category the good side or the bad side in right, the list of kings that were faithful and stuff, he's on the side that was not faithful. Okay. Um, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo as far as the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free. And there was none to help Israel, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, it might strike you strange what's going on in this passage. We find here that God prophesies through Jonah to Jeroboam II that he, that is God, would restore the border of Israel to Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Harba. But Israel under Jeroboam was an evil nation. And yet God is prophesying through Jonah prosperity. How can that be? Amos and Hosea somewhat contemporaries of Jonah, are speaking messages of judgment and warning, and they're speaking that to a nation that is prosperous, because there was great prosperity. The borders had expanded. There was political peace now in that region. There was also great evil, rampant corruption, moral decay. There was a neglect and a defiance of the one true God. In particular, Hosea fleshes that out for us. But God, always merciful, speaks through Jonah a message of prosperity. And why? We're told in verse 26, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. So there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. Even though they were wicked, even though they were evil, God in His mercy prophesied through Jonah, prosperity, growth, blessing on Israel. But they did not respond with repentance to God's grace. Now, friends, do you see the connection to us here in the United States of America? Are we a prosperous and powerful country? What's the answer? Yes. It may be declining pretty soon. But we are a prosperous and powerful country. Is there rampant sin and corruption in our culture? Yes. Is there a great disregard for Yahweh and the things of God? Yes. And as I was thinking through this, you know, I, I, I processed it this way, and I wrote this down uh, from my thoughts. Am I willing to look and see the wickedness all around me and say about the United States of America what God certainly says? You are a pagan nation. You have been given much by me in my word with the church, but you have run away from my authority. You have taken up your own selfish pagan wings to fly you into your own wickedness. Friends, America is not God's chosen nation. This is not a Christian nation. America is a pagan country. And there are believers in that pagan country. And we've got to be careful that we don't equate our Christianity with our politics in the sense of our patriotism. Alright? We are one nation under God. I recognize that. That's part of our original documents. But by practice, this is a pagan country. And we need to see it as such. I mean, just, just one note. When I've been to Russia, and I've been over to see our Russian brothers and sisters, their view of America is seen through the lens of our leadership. And they say, well, this is when Bill Clinton was president. Well, your president is a Southern Baptist. Your nation must be Christian. But you know, hey, listen, we view other countries we don't know too much about through the lens of things like that too, don't we? Here's a country that just might be all, you know, Muslim in their leadership. But let me tell you what, there are tons of Christian churches in those, in those areas. When I was pastoring in Michigan, there was a, a lady who came from Iraq. And she was just talking about, you know, there are Christian churches there in Baghdad. You wouldn't think about that when you're listening to all the news. Here we are, a nation, really, that is pagan. So I, I, we connect with this. Now imagine if Jonah's message were given to us today. He said, America's borders are going to expand. He'd be on Larry King Live. He'd be sitting with Oprah. Of course, the show's over now, but he'd be sitting there as a, as, a, as a wonderful guest because we want to hear about this prosperity. We want to hear this good news of, of all these blessings that are happening to us. He'd probably be on CNN. I'm sure that he'd be, his picture would be on Time Magazine and Newsweek and probably even the Rolling Stone Magazine. He'd be the cool prophet because he has a message of popularity and prosperity. God is blessing us. God is going to be good to the United States of America. He's going to expand. He's going to, he's going to grow. Hey, He might even be on the list for Man of the Year. Or maybe even... The Nobel Peace Prize. Hey, I mean, he's bringing prosperity, and there was peace. See, the reality is he was a prophet in 2 Kings there that had a message that was popular. It was good. Now, think through this a little bit with me. He was likely then a comfortable prophet. Tolerated, liked, welcomed. Unlike Amos, who was bringing a message of judgment and warning unlike Hosea who was bringing a message of confrontation regarding the abandonment of God and the people of, of Israel playing the harlot with false gods. No, Jonah's message was God is going to be good to you he's going to expand your borders he might even have written some books Your Best Israel Now The Border Driven Life I'm meddling, I'm just having fun here, alright? But you get my point, it's all the kind of stuff, oh yeah, tell us, we want to hear it, Jonah, give us more! But Jonah's preaching God's word. He was actually, this is what God wanted him to preach. He wasn't holding back, this was his message. I'm going to expand your borders. But his message was about to change. His message was going to be new. It was going to be fresh. It was a new commission. A new message. Now let me ask you a question. What is a prophet to do with God's word? What is their responsibility? Pardon? Proclaim it. A prophet's job wasn't so much to interpret, but it was simply to be a mouthpiece for what God was saying. Speaking to the people there, but he was speaking for God. What do you expect from a pastor when God has given his message? Listen, the New Testament equivalent of what a prophet is doing is what a pastor does. A pastor proclaims God's word. My job is to open up this word and say, Thus says the Lord, not Thus says Rod. Although I'm using my personality and my gifts hopefully to make it understandable and to help clarify some things. But it's God's word that is the authority. It's God's word that needs to be seen and understood. It's not my job to pick and choose which message maybe I like. It's not my job to to kind of think, well, what will the people like? What will get me on Larry King? What will get me to sit across from Oprah or to get on Time Magazine? No, my job is to be faithful to preach the word of God. And listen, a healthy church will want a pastor and its leadership, anyone who's standing before them, to preach the word of God, to be faithful to that, to preach a word of encouragement, a word of blessing, a word of warning, a word of confrontation, a word of judgment, a word of repentance. And friends, if the story of Jonah is speaking to anyone this morning, it's speaking to me because God has put on my shoulders the responsibility to faithfully say what God is saying to whatever audience he wants me to speak to. It may be intimidating, it may be easy, it may be people that I have a struggle with, but God has given me as his as his mouthpiece that particular responsibility. I am duty-bound to preach the word in season out of season, Reproving, rebuking, exhorting with patience and sound doctrine. And friends, the Jonas of this world are well-liked and they're popular. But listen, I know, unless they have a completely seared conscience, they wrestle with the tension Of what they're called to do. I, as a pastor, if you handle the Word of God and teaching it, you wrestle with the tension of this is not going to be received well, or some people may not like this message, but I still have the responsibility to give it. I'm a human being just like you are. I get intimidated just like anyone else, but it's not me, it's God that needs to be on display. All right? And friends, we don't like the tension. It's the tension of the life of the believer. We like to learn about the blessings and the promises of God, and we need that. We need to be reminded of that. We, we sang about it today. We've talked about the mercy of God. We are all recipients of that. We like to hear that we can lean... Jesus during times of difficulty and suffering and that's good and it's helpful and it's necessary but we bristle oftentimes at the words of confrontation that come at us by the Holy Spirit like a scalpel working his will to expose our sin and to expose our attitudes and to expose our idolatry. We bristle at that and sometimes that's hard for us. We don't want to be told what to do we just want to feel good. We want to enjoy our walk with God. And somehow we deliriously you know, relegate God to this, this place of being our buddy or being our homeboy or being our co pilot. He's none of those things, He is the creator of the universe, He's the sovereign God. He is the one that we have been privileged by virtue of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to have a personal relationship with that is based on the gospel. He's not just some guy you pull out and rub a lamp and talk to when you have trouble. He is he's the king of the universe. So God comes to Jonah with a message. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. There are three parts to that message. Here's the first part. Jonah, here is what I want you to do. This is your mission. Okay? This is your mission. And I want you to notice what it says there. It says, arise, go, call out. That's what he's being told to do. Arise, go, call out call out. Now hold your place there in the book of Jonah and go back to Genesis chapter 35. I thought this was a very, very interesting parallel. It's almost identical in the Hebrew here. Genesis chapter 35 verse 1. We begin a continuation of a story in the life of Jacob and he is on this journey and he has failed actually to get to the place where God wants him to go and he's been settled down in a city where he's really not supposed to be. He's supposed to be in Bethel. And God comes in verse 1 of 35 and says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. What's going on there is this. There was a kind of a, a time of silence, a time of inactivity, a time of, of lulling down. And God has to come and he has to wake him up. And So that's why it says arise. If you have the NIV, it doesn't translate the word arise. I don't know why they chose to do that. But there's actually this word arise and then there's this go up in both of the texts. And so, just getting the idea of what's happening there in Genesis is the same idea, I think, of what's taking place here with Jonah. Jonah with his message of of prosperity, Jonah being that that prophet that seems to be liked, he's getting comfortable, he settled down. I'm sure he's doing other things for God, but it's possible that he was getting lulled by life. And so God comes and speaks and says, Jonah, arise. Now it's not just, you know, hey, you know, just get up. It's you know, I think there's there's more to it than that. It's it's I have something new to do, a new commission. I want you to get up, I want you to go. And I want you to cry out, call out to these people. So there's a, a great assumption here that I believe that is taking place in this story. And this is the, the first assumption I, I, I want us to at least think through. That God believes that when he speaks that every servant owes him obedience. <laughs> if God says, arise, arise, go and cry out, what does he expect for his servant to do? To arise, to go, and to cry out. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, a, not a hard assumption, but it's an assumption nonetheless, I think, that we need to recognize when God speaks to us. When you're reading his word, or when you're listening to his word, or maybe you're listening to a song that has his word, and you're confronted with the truth of God, he wants you to take it and to do something with it that would be in conformity to his will. When he commands, he wants us to be obedient, right? That's the assumption here. He's not saying, Jonah, would you? Would you please, maybe if you have some time, you get out of Jerusalem and maybe stop off at Nineveh and just kind of talk to them for a little bit. If you can give this message of judgment, that would be helpful. No. No. He says, go. He commands him to go. Okay? The second thing here about this message is that um, he's saying, God is saying, Jonah, this is the place and the people to whom you must go and preach this message. This was not a message for Jerusalem. So it wasn't a message for Damascus. It wasn't a message for Israel. It was a message for the city of Nineveh and ultimately the people living in the city or around the city of Nineveh. Let's think about Nineveh, because it's described as the great city. Its size, certainly, is something to consider. It was probably at that time the largest city in the known realm at that point in time. In fact, if you have your Bibles open to Jonah, um, notice the last verse of the whole book. It says... And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left? Very, very likely that's talking about children, young children, infants, who are not at that age of true understanding. So if there are 120,000 children, what does that tell you? There's a lot of moms and dads around too, right? This is a huge place, and the historians estimate probably five times larger than Jerusalem. This is a huge city, okay? And and the fact that it it also took him three days to walk through proclaim this message is also significant. But it was also a great city in the sense of its influence. It was the capital of the Assyrian um, people, the Assyrian Empire. They were a powerhouse at that particular point in time, but God, through his Prophecy brought blessing and brought peace to that region. But the Assyrians were known for being very, very evil and very, very wicked, in particular with those whom they conquered. Now, I'm not trying to gross you out. I just want you to get the impact of what's going on here. When they would conquer a people, oftentimes, from what I understand, what they would do with the men is they would cut their hands off they would cut their ears off, they often would cut their, their feet off too, and they would put them in piles and let the birds and the beasts come and finish the job. I mean, incredible cruelty. They'd take the children, boys and girls, they would burn them at the stake. The king of the nation or the peoples that they conquered would be taken back to Nineveh, and part of the entertainment for the king Um, of Nineveh or the Assyrians was to have that particular leader um, have their skin removed from their bodies while they're alive. This is the kind of people that we're talking about here. There was a history of this. Israel, Judah were spared up to this point of this kind of stuff. God was merciful to them part of the restoring these borders or expanding these borders was this peace that stopped the hand of Assyria coming and taking them over. You with me there? Okay. This is all part of the blessing. But their reputation was known far and wide. The kind of people that they were. So they were feared and God had given Israel peace. But here's the third thing then. Jonah, this is the reason for the message against the people of the city. I am against the city Their evil has come up before me. Not only does God see all, hear all, understand all, he also smells all. This expression, come up before me, is an expression that's describing an aroma. Right? The evil of the Ninevites has come up before me. It is a bad aroma. This is not new language, though, in our Bibles. We lose it a little bit in the English translation, but this is the same idea that we find in Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, where, where God says, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up before me. So the wickedness that's taking place here may not be the things I just told you about that they were known for. We're not told specifically what the evil is, but it certainly was significant enough for God to say, I'm raining down judgment on you. In 40 days. So we've seen the divine commission from God. How would you respond? You're going from being a popular prophet, well liked, with a message of blessing, to being told to go 600 miles away to the capital city of the people that your people despise and hate because of their wickedness, because of how they treat other people. And you're going to go with a message of judgment. Hmm. Interesting. Now let's look at the defiance of a stubborn prophet. The defiance of a stubborn prophet. Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I am convinced that the writer of this book, if it was Jonah, loves to say Tarshish, okay? In one verse, we have it three times. But, the emphasis here is going away. Location, Tarshish. Now you might come to this and say, hey, but Jonah rose, right? I mean, hey, God said, Jonah, arise and Go. He arose. See, he's being obedient, isn't he? See, this is where our kids will respond to us. I got up, Dad. Yeah, but you didn't get up and get ready and all that stuff, right? So, incomplete, incomplete obedience is not obedience, right? It's just disobedience because <laughs> it's not complete, right? Um, he did get up, but it's what he did after that that reveals his heart. He rose to flee, in particular, from the presence of the Lord. We find a number of occasions where prophets debate their call, wrestle with it, seek assurance or clarification about what God is asking them to do, but this is the only time in the Word of God where we find a prophet saying no to God. I am not going to do this. Now get this, this isn't simply disobedience disobedience would be more like Jonah kind of laying in bed and God speaking to him and saying, oh, okay, and he rolls over and lays his head down and says, well, I'll get to that eventually, blah, blah, blah. This is defiance. This is Jonah saying, I know what you're telling me to do, but hear this, God, I am not going to do it. And we don't have those words necessarily right here but we have the actions that demonstrate that that was the attitude of his heart. He had the choice when he got up and when he stepped out of his house to turn east and a little bit north toward Nineveh or to go toward Joppa, which is on the coast, to get on a boat and to head out to Tarshish. Geographically, Tarshish was the complete opposite of where he was supposed to go. And he chose not to go toward Nineveh, he chose to go to Tarshish, and ultimately through Joppa. So we're told that he was fleeing here from the presence of the Lord. Now, when you read that, aren't you, don't you just kind of like scratch your head and say, wait a second, we're talking here about prophet of God, right? And a prophet of God is supposed to know some things about God, right? Supposed to know God's word. So turn to your Bibles to a familiar passage, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. I mean, certainly, Jonah must have known that God was omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere, because God's word reveals that to us. Psalm 139, verse 7 and following, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Yet Jonah, the dove, sprouted wings and fled to Tarshish. He took the wings of the morning and went in the opposite direction. Certainly Jonah was aware of God's omnipresence and that he could not get away from him. But is there something else going on here? And the answer to that question is yes. Because this whole expression we find in this passage where it says um, here that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord is uniquely prophet language. I'm going to ask you to turn to a couple of passages of scripture. I want you to turn to, first of all, 1 Kings 17.1. 1 1 Kings 17.1. And here we're going to look at Elijah, a prophet of God. 1 Kings 17.1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Did you get that expression there, before whom I stand? Okay? Now turn over to Second Kings chapter five and verse sixteen. And we have his protege, Elisha, now First Kings, sorry, Second Kings, chapter five, verse 16. it says, "But it, and it's talking about Elisha, said, "As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none." And he urged him to take it, but he refused. But it's that phrase again, "Before whom I stand." This expression, "The presence of or in the presence of or before whom I stand, has the idea of a prophet standing in God's presence and taking the responsibility of his role as a prophet. So when it says that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, it's not just saying, I'm trying to get away from God. What it's saying here is, I'm running away from my God-given responsibility. Jonah was a prophet of God. That's what God had called him to be. He was a mouthpiece for him. But he was saying, I don't want that responsibility anymore. So it isn't that somehow um, he thought that he could get beyond the reaches of God's sovereignty, but rather he wanted out of Project Nineveh. He didn't want to serve in the capacity of prophet. He didn't want to stand in God's presence and speak for him. He wanted to get away from God's call. And surely he was thinking, if I can physically remove myself from the place that God has called me, then maybe God will choose someone else to do the job. And friends, there's a huge application for us in that story, in that message today. Hear this. The fallen condition that is screaming out at us this morning is this, the real possibility that we have been running away from God simply by running away from our responsibilities before him. If you are a husband, you have a responsibility to your wife. To love her, to learn her, and to lead her. But you may, out of time and neglect and own selfishness and all sorts of things, maybe good things, have allowed yourself to drift And you are no longer taking that responsibility seriously. There's a sense in which you are running from the presence of the Lord because you are not standing in your responsibility as a husband. Wives, you're not off the hook. Because you have a responsibility to lovingly submit and to lovingly respect your husband. But you may have abandoned that. I'm not going to do that. I know that's what God says, but I'm not going to do that. We live in America, for crying out loud. But you have a responsibility before God. That is the mantle that He has given you. And when you choose to step away from that, you're running from the presence of God. As parents, you have been given the responsibility of of raising your children in the ways of God, to bring them up, and the training and the admonition of the Lord. I know it's hard. I know there's battles sometimes, but it's very possible that you have taken that responsibility and justified and rationalized it away that you're now saying, I'm just running from the presence of God. It's my responsibility, but I'm no longer embracing it. In fact, I don't want it anymore. Maybe just the way you live your life at school, at work, in the community. There are are realities that God has placed on you as one of his children that you're saying, you know what, I don't want this anymore. But this is what God's called you to. He's called you to be a Christian believer in a community, to be a light, to be a source of help and strength to those that are around you. But you say, no God, I'm going to do this. and By virtue of saying that, you are Stepping away from your God-given responsibility. God's called you to control your emotions, to control your attitude, to control your mouth, and to be wise with your finances. We can go on and on and on. These are all responsibilities that God has placed on believers. But it's possible for us to say, nope, I know that's where you want me to go. You want me to go to Nineveh, God, but I'm going to Tarshish on this one. And So we justify and we rationalize away. So why did Jonah run? Let's be clear, it wasn't because he was frightened. He didn't fear ridicule. He didn't fear so much being in Nineveh and speaking God's message. The clue for us is found in Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Notice Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4. It says here, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the message, that he was to cry out among that city. You say, well, what's up with that? It wasn't the overthrown part that Jonah had a problem with. He was all for the judgment. It was the 40 days they choked on. You see, if God wanted to judge a people... And if God felt justified in judging a people, he could do it when? Now. Just as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, I realized there was some time and there was some pleading, but God said, no, I'm going to do it. And just the fact that there was 40 days means that there was the possibility of those people with this message of judgment to respond to God and to humble themselves before him. And Jonah did not want that to take place look at Jonah chapter 4 and verses 1 and following but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry <laughs> oh yeah angry at people getting right with the God of the universe and he prayed to the Lord and said "O oh, Lord is not this what I said when I was yet in my country That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. At least he got his theology right. And relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. We're going to take more time later to pick that apart, but you see, Jonah didn't like the fact that he had a message of judgment that he knew within that message of judgment was the possibility of these people gaining the mercy and the favor of God. They don't deserve it, God! We're your chosen people! Guys, there's some things here that we need to think through. This story brings up Deep-rooted prejudices that keep Jonah from wanting to serve God. And I wonder what kind of deep-rooted prejudices we would have. That maybe God would call us to do a certain thing in a particular place, but because of certain prejudices, we would really, really fight through that. Now hear me, it could be an ethnic prejudice. Maybe you struggle with a certain ethnic group. Hispanic group, Asian group, African American group, white folk—go on down the list. Maybe it's a regional group. Oh, it's people in the South. You know, maybe it's the Middle East. Maybe it's the city folk, or maybe it's the suburbanites. You know, those suburbanites—they're always just gloating all the time. But see, we have these—we have these prejudices, often buried in our heart, and they still are there. And God exposes them when he calls us to do certain things. Maybe it's a historical group. I remember for years, living in England, I had kind of this bad attitude toward those who were German. Can you figure out why? And it's it's possible that, that you may have a certain attitude toward a certain group based on things that have happened in the history of this country. Or maybe in your own personal life history. You know, maybe people that live in Hayward, you know, those awful people, because you went to Castro Valley High and that was your rival school. And this deep thing is there and it's exposed. But guys, here's Jonah and it's revealed for us. There's something there. There's something that was holding him back from doing what God called him to do. And guys, it would be good for us just to allow the Holy Spirit to have freedom in our hearts this morning. To Say, what is it, God, that you want to teach us? What is it that you want to show us? Maybe there's something there that we need to repent of and say, God, you died on the cross for that person that's that's in my mind right now. There are those people that are in my mind right now and, and they are undeserving of your mercy and yet so am I. And why should they not receive it when I have been the recipient of your goodness. But our prejudices will get in there. There's one final point, though, that I want us to see as we, as we bring at least these few verses to a close. It's so easy to overlook this. Especially when we're trying to justify our disobedience or our complete and total defiance of what God wants us to do. Let's look at uh, this passage once again. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Boy, it all just worked out so smoothly for him, didn't it? He just sauntered down to, to Joppa. and just so happens there's a ship going to Tarshish. Wow! It just so happens that he had enough money for the fair. It wasn't a small fair. It was a big fair. The journey from Joppa to Tarshish would take, I think, what I recall reading was like over six months to get there. It was a long, long journey. It was a very expensive journey. But get this, you know the story. He paid the price for something he ended up not getting. But isn't it often true that when God's people stiff-arm God, defy God, want to do their own thing and not do what God wants them to do, somehow they begin to, they begin to look at their circumstances and say, ah, this worked out, and this worked out, and this worked out. It must be God's fill-in-the-blank will. But they are functioning in disobedience and defiance of God. But they begin to see God's will through circumstances, not his revealed truth. Now, friends, it's just interesting to me that just everything just went so smoothly on this part of the journey. You see, in Jonah's case, it wasn't God's will through obedience that was taking place. It was God's will through his divine discipline that was taking place. God was saying, okay, Jonah, go. But I'm going to do business with you. And I'm going to come to you and I'm going to challenge you. Because I'm here and I ask you to do something. And you're stubborn, but so am I. And I ask you to do something and it is going to get done. Now, friends. We serve a loving and merciful God, do we not? That is good in his pursuit of us when we are running from our responsibility before him. He loves us enough to chase after us. He lets us go a little bit to learn our lessons. But he does all he can to bring us back to the place where we are going to function in obedience to him. So, this morning I'd like to finish by looking at one verse of Scripture. It's in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I want to put all this in perspective. You know it very, very well. The Apostle Paul says in verse 6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just think of all the mess that you have created because of your sinfulness and your disobedience and your defiance and you're going in the complete opposite direction and yet God promises what? He's not through with you yet. He is still going to bring everything he wants to work through you to completion. His timing and his way. And so friends, if we are at a place of wondering, if we're at a place of, of defying God, trying to escape his presence, God comes to us this morning and he says to us, listen, I'm not done with you. You're still breathing. I'm still chasing after you. I still have a plan for you. But listen to me. Obey me. Follow me. Lord, help us today to be challenged by this life of Jonah. It is, for us, a negative example But, Lord, it is an example, nonetheless, where we can see ourselves in ways in which, Lord, we have failed to be obedient to you. And, Lord, we may have fooled ourselves into thinking we're doing the right thing. But, Lord, ultimately ultimately we may have shirked our responsibility before you. And, Lord, we are not standing in your presence. Help us, Lord, to see our sin this morning, to see the sinfulness of that sin. To come to you, Lord, with hearts of confession, to repent, and Lord, through all that to be restored back to you. Lord, as we as we together partake of this Lord's Supper, help this to be a time, Lord, for us to be reminded of what you have done on the cross for us. Lord, our position in you has not changed. When we embrace you as our Lord and Savior, You declared us righteous. We are clothed with the righteousness of your Son. That doesn't change, Lord. And we are in awe of that. But Lord, we may have wandered. And we need to be reminded, Lord, that we are secure in you. But Lord, help us now to pursue the holiness in this life that comes by being obedient to you. By your strength. By your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to come as people, Lord, who have confessed our sin before you. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Let me just encourage you just for the next couple of minutes or so just to do some soul searching.